0: Welcome back to institutionalize the podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Eric a reporter at the Washington free Vegan.
1: and I'm Charles vane Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute contributing editor of city journal and Charles, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. i I, I made the mistake. There's like there, there there are certain constituencies of crazy people on Twitter, and if you say the wrong things in the general vicinity, they get very mad at you. so this will this will give our listeners his usual sense of how far in advance we record these things. The other day, I, I I made the mistake. Let me back up. A friend of the show, Helen Andrews, tweeted something at turnstile jumpers in the in the DC subway, igniting a discourse. And I, of course, participated in this discourse as the fool that I am. Which I said it's actually bad to break rules, and it harms people around you when you deprive the system of sources of revenue. And this provokes, I would have to say, not really gentle disagreement but like profoundly unhinged response from lots of people who are clearly just mad that they have to pay for the subway but are like by endorsing fair beating enforcement of any kind whatsoever you are essentially hitler right it's, uh, yeah this is like i you know i i i spend a lot of my time sort of uh, like agitating about issues that nobody else cares about and then occasionally i say something that like Touches not merely, you know, I, I like to say often very meritocratic or sort of dull bureaucratic things that policing. I and mean, occasionally I touch one of the like the hot button issues and people are like, wow, you're a fascist. I'm like, I don't think that's true, actually. What well, were they? So were they accusing you of being Hitler or being racist? Yes. I mean. Hitler is, yeah, I, but, I don't know how to tell you this, but well, I mean, I was mean, actually quite racist. Hitler,
0: Hitler was racist, but like, but like it depends, you know, the charge can be different, right? Sometimes people are like, you're Hitler is in your like authoritarian and then the, but the other emphasis will be you're Hitler in the sense of, you know, you hate minorities because fair dodgers, disproportionate. I mean, it, you know, there's different kinds of arguments that
1: that they make to say yeah, that you're evil. Right, right. It was, it was, it was sort of an all of the above thing, but anyway, all this, this like this this interacts with, with my experience of advocating for the death penalty on Twitter, where I'll say, like, here's a heinous individual. It's good that we, we should kill him. And the people will be like, right? You are awful. You are you are a horrible, abhorrent, we're you know, bloodthirsty freak. And I'm like, No, I just think this person deserves to die. That's actually how humans have thought about many crimes for most of our history, and it's it's a basic moral intuition. And so, it's good
0: to have So on that, on that. that was bloodthirsty almost hit married a note Matt. charles what are we going to be talking about
1: today we're talking about capital punishment which i think is is i've wanted you wanted to do a show on capital punishment for a while for a while i mean i i do too but really i think almost you're you're the target audience here yeah i mean look the death penalty is i i, I think sort of peculiar as a as an institution in american society in in sort of the amount of heat that it generates Relative to the amount of the, the amount of force it actually exercises, relatively small number of people are executed every year in the United States. We talk about why, but even even at its peak, it's a couple hundred Today, day. You know, in the past several years, it's order ten to twenty. You know, there's a co- subject of constant debate and attention. Each execution receives massive media scrutiny. It's also, you know, I think the the death penalty is is one of the sort of, literally, the death penalty was is is an education in the absurdity of the American legal system, American legal precedent. And anyway, know, I think I, I think capital punishment is also capital punishment is also a live political issue in the sense that the former President Donald Trump brought back federal executions for the first time in two decades. Now the current President Joe Biden, established federal moratorium on the death penalty yet again. I think it's sort of a live question of how he's going to move on that. But anyway, look, you know, I think I think the capital punishment is interesting because it is at the intersection of a live political debate with real moral stakes. And it's almost impossible to talk about the death penalty without ultimately talking about profound moral questions. So why I think it's really, you know, look, my, my view, and we get, get to my views more generally, my view is the capital punishment is a sort of the fundamental question of the justice system in America. Like everything that you think about just about criminal justice in the United States and more generally can be distilled into the question of capital punishment. Aaron, what are, what are, what are your thoughts on the topic before we get to our guests? Yeah, so I'm genuinely agnostic on the death penalty.
0: Its opponents often strike me as opposed to the very concept of retributive justice. And I think that's crazy. Obviously, retributive justice is a real thing. Those who do wrong deserve some kind of punishment. Where my misgivings comes in is that the very, the very fact that we are inclined to reserve death for the worst of the worst people... Right? We don't even just do it for murder. We do it for extra bad murders. The very fact that it that it occupies kind of the status of worst punishment the American judicial system meets out is kind of an implicit admission that, as the Supreme Court has put it, death is different. And the difference and the finality of death relative to other sorts of punishments does engender some misgivings on my part about it, partly related to, you know, just the familiar, what if you kill the wrong person type of thing. And also, you know, I, I can understand why people are uncomfortable with the state deliberately deciding to mete out this finality when fundamentally it does not have to. So I understand the objections and I'm sympathetic to them to some extent, but I also understand the, the pull of the penalty. So I guess my goal in this conversation is to push... Charles and our guest to address what I think the best arguments against the death penalty are and to see if they can convince me that rather than being a death penalty agnostic, I should be a diehard death penalty fan. So without further ado, Charles, do you want to introduce our guest?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Our guest today is Charles Lane. Charles is a, he's an editorial writer and weekly columnist at the Washington Post. He joined the Post in 2000 as a editorial writer, also work as the Post Supreme Court reporter, but he's also the author of a book on capital punishment, Stay of Execution, Saving the Death Penalty from Itself.
2: Charles, thank you so much for joining us at Institutionalized. Thank you guys for inviting me on. This, you, this, this is not a cheerful subject, but if anybody can make it interesting, it's got to be us, right? <laughs> yeah. you're, the, you're our second guest named Charles. We've had zero errands and
1: now two Charles's. Well, there's yeah. a real
2: problem because not only are we both named Charles, but we can't even say Charles L., Right. To distinguish yeah. one from the other. So, right. why don't you just call me Chuck, which is what most people call me? <laughs> All right. Well, so, so Chuck,
0: one thing we like to do on the podcast is to start by asking guests to kind of steel man the best argument against their position. So, you, despite being critical of some aspects of the way the death penalty works in America, have nonetheless maintained that it has a role and it is legitimate. So, could you sort of give us what you think the best argument against the death penalty is, sort of the best argument for just completely getting rid of it, and then explain why you don't ultimately find it persuasive.
2: So I guess I consider the best argument, because it's the most consistent argument, is the pure abolitionist argument. No death penalty under no circumstances. It's like I compare it to pacifism. you know? It's like, It's a clear principle. It admits of no exceptions. It can clearly guide the law and clearly guide government's behavior. And, you know, it's rooted in a lot of sound, you know, honorable moral thinking that it's just wrong to take a life if you can avoid it. And that goes kind of double for the state, right? So actually, I don't think it's hard, at least for me, to identify what the strongest argument is against capital punishment. You know, and and frankly, I think a lot of the other arguments that are raised against it are just almost like embellishment or an effort to kind of come up with something that seems more tough-minded than that. For example, oh well, you know, it's it's cruel and unusual because this or that method is too painful, or that it's. Be, and and I think even though this is a historically true argument that it's racially disparate, even that is not the the most convincing because it raises the question suppose we could devise and maybe even in the day of artificial intelligence this is like a real possibility we could devise a computer program right that selected people scientifically for death eligibility and was completely free of any kind of bias racial or otherwise would you be for the death penalty then you know the answer to that question to me, would have to be no if you, if you were a true principled opponent of the death penalty. So I think that's the best argument against it. Now, am I supposed to try to refute that? I sort of partially did.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, mean, I guess just explain why you ultimately don't think that it's always morally wrong to, for the state to deliberately take a life.
2: You know, and, and I dealt with this in, in my book a number of years ago, which which grew out of my experience actually of covering a lot of death penalty litigation at the Supreme Court and sort of parsing in detail and reporting the details of cases. And I started out as like a real opponent of the death penalty on on these practical and procedural grounds and just finding over and over again that a lot of the claims that were being made about whether it was the racial disparities, whether it was the possibility of actually innocent people being executed, whether it was claims about the pain and suffering imposed by lethal injection. When you really drill down into them, they very often fall apart on close inspection. And then I compared that to my awareness of there being certain cases where even people who oppose the death penalty kept their mouths shut about it in certain really heinous crimes. One I remember very vividly, maybe you guys don't, was the D.C. sniper case back in the early 2000s. Yeah. And, you know, John I Allen. Being Muhammad,
0: forced to, uh, I remember being forced to stay inside. during. Yes. The so
2: like, John, John Allen Muhammad, who masterminded this horrible terrorist rampage around the country, was put to death by Virginia. And almost no one complained. And the same goes for somebody like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, where the author of 9-11, where even Eric Holder said, We're gonna put him to we're gonna put him on trial and we're gonna put him to death, conveniently right. <laughs> ignoring the fact that he might not be guilty. <laughs> and and those kinds of cases, that that tells me there's a they sort of bespeak the fact that even people who oppose the death penalty themselves kind of deep down can think of cases and crimes that are so horrible that it that they warrant it. And And I just I just try not to be hypocritical, you know, and I think it's a little bit hypocritical to harbor that view deep down, but somehow try to, like, suppress it and not not act on it. Right. This is this is, you know, a
1: live problem of the Biden administration where Biden, you know, Biden justice has this Moratorium that everyone knows, you know, it's it's allegedly about the procedure of the federal capital punishment. But it's really because they want to sort of not use the death penalty, also not full on abolishing it, and yet nonetheless, the Biden DOJ waved through continued prosecution of the of Miami Church shooter, Dylan Roof, the guy who shot up a historically Black church because it was really hard for them to come around and say, no, actually, we even think he shouldn't get put to death. I want to I want to go back for a second though just to talk about I mean you know there, there's such a tangle of issues here, but you worked as Supreme Court reporter. The Supreme Court's capital jurisprudence is a gigantic mess.
2: Discuss. <laughs> well, I think you've summarized it very well.
1: Um, <laughs> right. Just sorry. Just just very briefly, Aaron alluded in his opening comment to the claim that we reserve capital punishment only for. Murder, And that's because and and it's proof the death is different, except we only reserve it only for murder because the Supreme Court just decided you can't execute people for rape, including child rapists.
2: But but actually, that isn't even true because the capital punishment is available for treason.
1: Right. You can also. do for And and I believe espionage. I'd have to double check that. It's, It's 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 homicide and crimes against the state.
2: Yeah. So the Supreme Court goes after capital punishment under a lot of different authorities. Of course, there's the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual thing. There's a lot of litigation around Sixth Amendment right to counsel, ineffective assistance of counsel. There's elaborate doctrine on all of these points. And yet, I think, I think what's, interesting, what, what's interesting about Supreme Court jurisprudence is what it's never done in all the years. It has never said the Constitution prohibits capital punishment, period. Even in the Furman case in 1972, It said the existing body of state law is unconstitutional, but if it were corrected to allow for the, you know, different circumstances of various murders and to allow separate consideration of the penalty by a jury, it could be constitutional, and that's how we got the modern death penalty that's been around since 1977. Furthermore, the court has never declared any method of constitutional, sorry, of execution unconstitutional. I think a lot of people might be surprised by that. But, you know, if if some state wanted to pass a law approving, you know, firing squad or garroting, even. Can maybe, you maybe, yeah, I mean, at least on paper, the ha- hanging, these things would be, at least on paper, constitutional, they'd be challenged. But and so and so I think that that, too, is kind of revealing, isn't it? That for all the misgivings and all the litigation and all the struggle It's never, the court has never felt it had the authority to abolish it. And I, I, of course, there's a sound constitutional reason for that, which is that it's implied in the constitution that it is one of the penalties that can be imposed. But I think there's also a basic political thing going on there, which is just like a lot of other people have great misgivings about capital punishment. The justices all, you know, over the years have reserved that. Two, they've thought there are cases where it might be warranted and don't want don't want to just rule that out and don't want to take responsibility for ruling it out I think another
1: another another I think important feature of capital punishment is, is sort of the mismatch between elite opinion and and popular opinion. On the one hand there's 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 a survey that I like comparing basically research study comparing Democratic donors versus uh, the Democratic base. And capital punishment is actually the issue on which donors were most out of step. And you see this reflected, media coverage of capital punishment. You see this reflected in how much attention is given to capital punishment as an issue among just former organizations. Relative to, in I think 60 years of polling, a majority of Americans have exactly one time said that they oppose capital punishment for murder. Once like even you know every, every year every year people try to trump the headlines where only 55% of americans think capital punishment so so i mean do you think capital punishment is is acceptable for sentences of murder do you agree with that analysis and if so what do you sort of make of that of that elite elite sort of popular mismatch
2: well i think there's clearly something to the elite versus popular mismatch that you described but if you'll forgive me, I'm going to sort of delve into it a little bit because this is a big theme in my book was the re- relationship between trends in public opinion and the actual law on capital punishment. They're closely related. Just a footnote, though, and I wrote about this recently in the context of another case, the Buffalo massacre, the massacre in Buffalo, 10 black people by a white supremacist shooter, which the Justice Department is considering putting in the death or seeking the death penalty. And many of the victims' families, who are black, are interested in having the death penalty pursued, even though civil rights organizations, the elite, so to speak, are against it. Interestingly, there's a black Americans are the largest or, or the least pro death penalty of any group in the country, and they're evenly divided. In last poll I saw, forty nine to forty nine. But even there, there's a discrepancy between college educated and non college where the college educated are somewhat more against it. So it holds up. Look, I think this is a longstanding... What am I trying to get at here? It's like everything else in our society. Every issue has become more and more polarized. The, The division is more and more based on levels of education and region and ideological priors. And yet for all that, it's interesting how... You know, relative to maybe some other issues that have gotten polarized, there's still fifty plus percent of the general public supports the death penalty for murder in at least some cases, and it ebbs and flows with the background level of violent crime. If you look at if you look at history, and Mark Ramirez of Arizona State University calls this punitive sentiment, right? The general that can be measured by various polling data. The punitive sentiment of the country sort of becomes more or less punitive with a kind of a lag depending on how much violent crime is going on. And I think the death penalty, pro-death penalty number peaked, an all-time peak at 80% in the 90s when crime was kind of out of control, and it's drifted down as crime has slowed. So a real question I wonder about is whether there's going to be any resurgence of pro-death penalty sentiment if this uptick in violent crime that we've been going through turns out to be more durable and whether states like even start trying to reinstate it, you know? But the last point I'll make on this is that I think it's way too often overlooked that when people say, well, you know, all these states have repealed, we've gone down from 38 who had the death penalty in 2000 to 27 today and so on. The death penalty still exists in the whole country, In the sense that there is a federal death penalty. And I just talked about the Buffalo, New York case. Right. New York does not have a state death penalty. Does uh, It does. It's just it's just suspended, but it's still on the books and they could fix okay. it okay. Time. Okay, it's a very the, easy picks. Yeah, but you see, they they wouldn't yeah. prosecute under state law. Massachusetts hasn't any death penalty, but Jokar of the Boston Massacre bomber, is getting it under the federal authority. And so it's a lot more it's a lot more nuanced than a lot of the discourse, which is let's face, it, is basically dominated by people who oppose capital punishment. They're the most outspoken on this, would would let you believe. I don't know. That was kind of a rambling answer. Oh no, no, it was great. It was great. Yeah. So I guess
1: the, the the other angle, and I know I know Aaron had sort of some meteor questions he wanted to dig into, but the other angle I wanted to talk about just sort of informing our listeners is recent trends in actual executions. And I wonder, I wonder so, you know, part of part of our understanding is that I think that there's there's this parallel phenomenon there's the public debate about the death penalty. There's also like what what I can picture his face. Samuel Alito called the guerrilla war on the death penalty, which is the efforts by abolitionist activists to route around modern capital punishment by lobbying pharmaceutical firms to not distribute Execution drugs to states. This is, you know, this has produced eighty-three different Supreme Court—not actually a large number—Supreme of Supreme Court cases about method and whether this drug used in combination with that drug is adequate. Can you can you talk about? I mean, either from the Supreme Court context or the activist context, because because I think that is you know, in 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 the real world, that is that is the terrain on which death penalty is currently being disputed.
2: Well, in general, there's a long, long history of dilatory lawyering by the capital defense bar. And, you know, I don't blame them. I think this is, they're doing their job. They're in a context where the death penalty per se is constitutional and legal in certain states. And therefore they've got to figure out a way to stop their client from getting it within that framework. And so they do litigate all kinds of things that you know, a bewildering range of technicalities, including in recent times the um, so-called drug, I I hate this term, but it's called the drug cocktail that is administered as part of lethal injection. Of course, the big picture irony there is that lethal injection was, they came up, the pro-death penalty people came up with it because they thought, aha, we've come up with the method no one could possibly challenge. It's painless. It's a lethal injection. But you know, they, there has been research done that suggests, you know, there could be short-term but intense burning sensation that isn't detected because the inmate who's being executed is in a induced coma for a moment. And, I mean, frankly, there's a huge irony here, which is that practically the same sequence of drugs is used in euthanasia. in in Europe and Canada, query whether that's a topic that, of, our, of our show. Yes, query whether that's a contradiction or not. But they have gotten some traction with that. And, you know, again, if you're fighting for the life of your client, which they yeah. are, go for it. You will go for it. You will try to find any argument you can. What's interesting to me is that the Supreme Court has sort of allowed these things to kind of go on, but has never. Yet, and I don't think what this lineup on the court is going to said no lethal injection is unconstitutional. They've allowed litigation to go forward on it, but have never definitively ruled it out. And I think
1: um, they've been pretty explicit that there has to be there, there has to be some method. Right, this is the whole Gloucester point. So there has to be some method that is illicit. you can't just sort of iterate through. Yeah, I, I just and then I want to kick this to Aaron. My my favorite example of this just to sort of highlight is so the two separate cases for the court. Vernon Madison, who's a who's a was a death row inmate, died on death row in Alabama. Before he died on death row in Alabama, he'd been in litigation so long over his capital sentence that he had grown old enough that he developed vascular dementia. And so his his defenders said he can't remember his crime there because he has vascular dementia, because we've been trying to get him off death row for so long. Therefore, he cannot be held accountable for his crime. Therefore, you cannot execute him.
2: Well, Justice Wait. Breyer in a related Vain. Justice Breyer wrote many dissenting opinions, arguing that the delays in administering capital punishment rendered it unconstitutional because the delays were cruel. And of course, Clarence Thomas responded, "Well, you know, just if you you'd get out of the way, Stephen Breyer, that they could hurry it up." Incidentally, I think that that raises a paradox here, which is that there are many people on—not exactly a paradox, sort of an irony—that there are many, many people on death row we all know are never going to be executed. you know there i I checked today in preparation for this there are twenty four hundred and thirty six people on death row right now in the various states and federal system. and I think last in twenty twenty one there were eleven executions. So obviously most of them at that rate would grow old and die before they were ever executed. number one and number two, of the total people on death row right now, one third are in two states, California and Pennsylvania, 690 in California, 138 in Pennsylvania, where there are moratoriums on executions in place. So we have, I, you know, if I were Henry Kissinger, I would say we have a declaratory death penalty. You know, that we, we declare the policy of executing people, but we don't actually follow through on it. And I would just throw out to you guys as to whether that might not actually be with a wink and a nudge kind of a good way to do things. You know communicate the idea by by sentencing people to, that their crimes are so horrible but not actually risking the terrible scenario of yeah. executing an innocent person by actually doing it
0: that's interesting yeah, that's, well,
2: that's, I, that's that's a, that's a theme that
0: uh, we we've, we've that that occurs on this podcast that well charles you can say something but i was just to say i mean charles is a fan what's his name The mark the, the drug guy
1: who you mark like climate so yeah mark air climate
0: yeah like 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 you know, or like the sort of importance of of you know conveying standards. That's really oh, you're
1: talking about James Q. Wilson. I talked about in the other in the other episode. Right, but um, the, the, sort of a,
0: yeah, I mean, there's sort of this idea. We've we've also talked about this with assisted suicide, where it's like, well, you know, you maybe don't want to legally do it, but you kind of turn a blind eye. I mean, this is almost the this is a related but almost inverted thing, where it's like you you say that it's legally you allow it but then in practice, you really don't. And the goal is to sort of, through the law, express the community's values and express the the idea that people deserve to suffer without risking the, as you say, kind of potential negative consequences of actually instantiating that idea in, in practice. I have a lot of like philosophical questions about this. I, before I do the philosophical questions, I do just one last piece of kind of stage setting there's two very common objections to the death penalty that are, I would say are proceduralist objections. One, one is about sort of the racial disparities and the other is that the disabled tend to be disproportionately mentally... I mean, sorry, that the people on death row tend to disproportionately be mentally retarded or have some kind of mental problem. Or at least those are two claims I have heard. So could you just briefly describe how true or not those claims are?
2: Well, the racial one is definitely true historically. You know, I, I, I forget the exact numbers, but I went over them in my book and there were hundreds of people executed for rape in the United States prior to the 1970s, the vast majority of them were black. And I think right there is a, kind of all you need to prove that the death penalty was a racist institution in our history. I think it's been more difficult to sustain that case, although there's certainly some validity to it now, the arguments get more complicated because for example instead of arguing that black perpetrators are more likely to get the death penalty the argument the more modern argument is to say that people who kill white people are more likely to get the death penalty and that in some way this is a, a reflection of the devaluation of black lives which is crazy because because the P- most homicide is interracial well, I, I, I think there's something, to I'm not sure I would say crazy, but I, I think there is something to your point, Charles. And, and, I, and the point I made in my book was, was slightly different, which was, remember, it's not just a state-by-state state situation here. It's a county-by-county, county, which means it's a prosecutor-by-prosecutor. Prosecutor, which, and, and in certain places, like Baltimore at one time, or the Bronx before, I believe it was the Bronx, before New York abolished the death penalty, certain Black elected district attorneys said they would not pursue, categorically would not pursue the death penalty, and or jury pools that were majority Black either would not apply the death penalty, or it was not even sought because the prosecutors knew it's more likely that you will be denied the death penalty by a Black jury pool. And in that way, and I went through the data in my book, I don't have it at my fingerprints, but there was a kind of a paradox, which was that one reason fewer Black victim potential death penalty cases were pursued was was like a paradoxical outcome of Black empowerment in politics. That is to say, like, Blacks were on juries, Blacks could vote, Blacks could serve as district attorneys, and that had not been true in the past. So i mean, again. I don't want to completely discount. I don't think you can and or should completely discount the racial disparity in the pursuit of the death penalty against black perpetrators and or people who kill whites. But I think I think it's a more complicated picture than that. So then your second off-stated objection is again is the potential to the frequency
1: uh, of measured mental disability by certain definitions of mental disability some of the time to test
2: yeah. you. Know. Well, what 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 I and know if you measure all of them. I covered the case about what used to be called mental retardation, is now called intellectual or cognitive disability, I think. And the court agonized with that in two different cases and eventually barred it, which led to a whole lot of follow-on litigation, of course, about how this should be defined. And even if you could define it either by an IQ score or other indicia, who should be the decision-maker and how should that decision-making process be structured? Should it be done by a jury? Should it be done... I candidly have not followed all the ins and outs of that litigation, but I do have the impression that it has led to considerable delay in the actual execution of any number of people who are on death row and who are kind of, you know, retrospectively asserting their. I mean, at the risk of cutting you short, here I, I just did want to kind of like articulate where I come out in terms of how to like kind of cut through a lot of this stuff right? Yeah, I bo- go for it. I, no, go for it. Go for it. I sort of believe that I said in my book, and I think I still believe it, which is that if we narrowed the set of circumstances in which cases the death penalty could even be pursued, a lot of this other stuff would drop out, right? Like, I don't believe a convenience store holdup where the guy shoots the clerk and kills him tragic and horrible and criminal as it is should even be a death penalty case and a lot of them were you know in the 80s and 90s my my gut is the death penalty should be reserved for extreme crime you know 9-11 maybe the massacre in buffalo frankly the closer a crime is to a kind of war an act of war you know the better I think it corresponds to a state response kind of on the same level. To me, the absolute paradigm case for death penalty occurred in a country that had abolished the death penalty, which was Norway when Anders Breivik killed all those children in a racially motivated horrific massacre, 69 kids, and then he blew up a bomb that killed eight more people. And one day he was completely unrepentant. It was completely premeditated. It was socially destabilizing. It was murderous. And he, at his own trial, declared the penalty that was the maximum under Norwegian law, 21 years. He declared it pathetic. And I wrote in my column, that's the only sane thing the man's ever said. And, you know, I, I think a crime like that is is clearly in the realm where the death penalty should be considered. And the the more we could do... To just sort of, you know, take off the table a lot of debatable cases, you know, the the clearer and the less the, the less difficult this issue gets. Sure. So,
0: so what would you do about a case where it's it's not necessarily a terrorist act, but it's incredibly sadistic? So, say I, I'm going to com- kind of construct a hypothetical based on lots of different Law and Order SBU episodes, you know, see, but but you know. Imagine like, you know, trigger warning or whatever, like someone, you know, re- there are real things like this, like breaks into the house, like rapes an entire family, like, you know, ties up the mother, rapes the daughters in front of her, then rapes the mother in front of the daughters, then like cuts off room slowly and then sets them on fire, laughing the entire time, you know, just like pure psycho evil, Right. What I mean, would you say that that and there's no dispute that he did it, right? We we have video evidence. We have DNA evidence. We know he did it. He has he laughs maniacally in court saying, yes, and I would do it again. You know, that case, like, would you also say that's a pretty good candidate for death penalty?
2: You have a vivid imagination, Aaron. But yes, <laughs> my
1: answer to I was you was gonna yes. real crimes.
2: Yeah. That I mean, bad. And cases pretty like that happened. So so and this is something else I said in my book is that, you know, what? And, you know, of course, the objection that can be raised against anything I'm about to say is like, oh, well, where do you draw the line? How do you know that's over the line? And 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 of course, that's an objection that can be raised. I'm I'm I concede that. But I think I think I had been earlier making the case that the quantity of the number of victims and the kind of socially destabilizing Mm -hmm. character of the crime but yes the 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 sort of outrageously heinous nature of a crime even if it is not as socially destabilizing as something like 911 or what Anders Breivik did i think is also a potential area i mean i have to say just on a very personal level i had great misgivings with what the court did about categorically banning the execution of people who rape small children you know i think
1: in 2007
2: yeah i mean i think that's it's something we a lot of people, a lot of people would agree with me that that's something that could be right. contemplated. It's a closer call than cases that involve death. And so I guess what I'm getting at is that I think, the you know, we all kind of know it when we see it, when something is that aggravated as to kind of like enter into the realm. But I guess maybe the one thing that distinguishes my thinking about this is that I do tend to put a little bit of weight on the the multiple number of victims from a single mm-hmm. offense, right? And so if it is, however heinous, if it is a single victim, and you're able to apprehend the person before he's committed a whole series of them, because, you know, serial killers is another category, then I think you could rule out the death penalty. But I mean, you know, Sure, I think I'm I'm willing to get into the line drawing game.
0: Yeah, well,
2: I ask, but 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 just just
1: very briefly, I think I think that the line drawing game is sort of part of the challenge of it. Look, the the, a strong case, a steelman case, to the abolitionist position is that ultimately, the argument is, and I agree with the argument. The argument is that death there are certain crimes to which heinousness as a as a quality qualifies the offender for death. Heinousness is always – you can't just write a law that – you can write a law that says if it's heinous enough, you can execute them. But it's really hard to articulate principles for what heinousness is. And you know, one response to that is, well, it will be infected by bias. It's arbitrary and post hoc. The other response to that is like, yes, this is why we have juries that decide facts. Like all crimes are ultimately particular in their character, whether or not you, – you know, a, a basic assumption of our English common law system is that people can come together and reason morally about the character of crime. And determine right. what is portion what is not portion, which is you know why, why, in some sense, evolution itself upon the the principle of retribution altogether,
2: yeah. and yeah. and I think again, I think if you were to sort of consider a bunch of recent cases altogether, what you would find is there's actually more convergence and consistency in the intuitions that people end up acting on than you might think. I mean, you know the the Justice Department is pursuing the death penalty against this guy Saifulo Saipov. Who I mean, this is a horrible thing. Everyone's even forgotten. Twenty seventeen, he drove rider. into a bunch of bike riders or a bike lane in New York and killed eight people. And it was motivated by terror. You know, eight people killed all at once. That's consistent with seeking the death penalty against Dylan Roof, who killed nine people. It's consistent with seeking it against the the man in Buffalo who killed ten. You see what I'm saying? It's like it's actually not quite as arbitrary as you might think particularly if you if you rule out categorically with all the risks that that has, the single person case. I just want to repeat before I let Aaron take the floor back again. I just want to repeat, I have great respect for the abolitionist position of the death penalty. I think it comes from a place of genuine and th- those who are sincere about it, genuine humanitarian belief, religious belief often, and it is consistent. it's in, it's a it's a consistent Enforceable position. And I I just don't happen to share it, but I admit that when I start entering into all these kinds of debates about this or that circumstance, it's easy to pick it apart.
0: Yeah. So so I mean, you guys just sort of addressed, I think, one common objection, which is the line, the line drawing objection from the perspective of, well, how do you know someone's done something bad enough to trigger death? I actually to go about that objection a bit differently which is to approach it from from the opposite direction and say some crimes are so much worse than just killing one or even 10 people i mean it could be like you know you say do the 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 really heinous rape and murder torture thing but like to 50 people and then i think someone might have the intuition well actually that's so bad that death is just not quite enough and if we really care about giving people what they deserve Why don't, you know, eye for an eye, why don't we, you know, we're not going to actually deputize agents of the state to go and physically rape the person, but I've given this hypothetical to Charles. So by Chuck, I'm curious what you make of it. Again, apologies for the graphic nature of the thought experiment, but say, say we had a robot that could rape or, or simulate the experience of being brutally raped, tortured, you know, and all of that, and then would kill you right? So it would recreate the experience that you inflicted on your victims before they die and then kill you. Why not do that, right? I mean, I think that's a real question. Why not do that?
2: Well, I do know that you very often hear, if you're like me and you watch a lot of true crime shows on TV, you often hear the families of the victims say in court or elsewhere, I want you to feel exactly what my son or daughter or wife husband felt. I want you to go through that. Prison is too easy for you. And that's where I sort of feel like, again, we're talking intuitions here. I can't articulate a finely granulated logical sequence for you. It feels to me like that's where the state would be going too far because the state would then be behaving, would be rep- replicating the behavior of the perpetrator uh-huh. As opposed to punishing it. And I think actually the fact that a quick, definitive execution is not like drawing and quartering or the other sort of barbaric torture punishments that used to be done once upon a time, you know, is is a civilized feature of this. I mean, I just don't think I mean for what it's worth, Aaron, I mean that's a that's a vivid hypothetical, but I mean we're way past that anyway i mean that's never going to be that's never going to be thank god never going to be restored or even contemplated right, so right. there's kind of no point point. and and also i do think there you do have the eighth amendment for what it's worth it you know that would be cruel sure the the gratuitous addition of pain to an otherwise sanctioned punishment super addition I, I, I don't think that would be constitutional
0: right well i mean it's interesting because is I mean, that makes sense. I think the other objection you, you hear too, though, is some people will say that those, those sort of moral advances you talk about where we just decide to take away someone's life, but without adding pain, that, that that kind of clinicization of the death penalty, especially with lethal injection, some people, and I would say I count myself one of them, can find there to be something almost paradoxically disturbing about that. And because it i think it can seem like you're almost being dishonest and lying to yes you're sanitizing you're saying. yeah you're, you're
2: saying, i i have a, a friend who shall remain nameless but very thoughtful on matters of the law whose objection to the death penalty is entirely related to just the spectacle of the state kind of holding someone down and putting a needle in his arm sort of that that spectacle is, this is for the case of public hanging yeah and of course in in history the The death penalty was a spectacle, and we're not even talking about spectacle lynchings, which were extra legal and horrible, but they were, they were spectacle because they were considered to be morally educational to the public. And in Mm -hmm. fact, very often the, the, the defendant soon to be the executed party would be asked to, to address the assembled crowd on the subject of his crimes and his repentance. There would be clergy present and so on and so on. There's a man called Stuart Banner, who is a very smart law professor. who's written a whole book on this. It's fascinating. The history in, of the death penalty in colonial America. But I digress. I mean, I, I would say that going against your sanitization concern is, an, is one I raised in my book. And I think this is a really tough question, but I think it's relevant, which is the question of specific deterrence, okay? So very or incapacitation. So very often, the death penalty is discussed as to whether or not it is a deterrent. And interestingly, we haven't discussed that too much. You know, it, it prevents other people from t- committing the same crime. But with respect to extreme wrongdoers, especially in the political realm, the need to incapacitate particular individuals definitively beyond any possibility that they would escape from prison or later talk their way out or whatever, is a very interesting argument, I think in favor of certain capital punishment. When I was in Germany writing my book and I I was asked to give a lecture at the American Academy in Berlin on the subject of capital punishment, it was a German audience, and of course they're very anti-death penalty and I think America is a barbaric country. I asked this German audience, if they believe that Hitler should have gotten the death penalty. And none of them raised their hands, of course. And I said, but it's a trick question. You can't can't trust the Germans. (laughs) It's a trick question because what I meant was, should Hitler have gotten the death penalty for the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923? You know, he was arrested for treason not long after Bavaria had abolished the death penalty. So if he had been hanged for treason in 1923, we would have spared ourselves a lot of problems. I think about this a lot in the context of Anders Breivik, who will get out of prison. There's a good chance the Norwegian system will allow him to be kept in for his whole life. But if, if he were to get out of prison, in, he was very young when he was put in, in his 40s or 50s, he's a, he's a cult figure on the ultra-right in this world. He's, he's, he's become a martyr. And what would be the consequences of releasing him back into society when he still has the vitality to lead a political movement? I, I'm, I think there are people for whom that is a relevant consideration. Khalid Sheikh yeah. Mohammed, terrorists, people who are potential leaders of extremely destructive movements. We have I'm all been killed. Yeah. To, uh, so anyway, I mean,
1: uh,
2: and, and uh, I would have Ted Kaczynski, who still gets mail all the time,
0: even I though mean, he's- I mean, I mean, Lawrence. You could also, I, I wonder. Well, you know, you maybe worry about. The act of killing creating martyrs, too. Yeah. But I also wonder if, you know, subject to the constraints of sort of not doing it in a really
1: libertarian logic, brutal.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, you're, you, you, if you, if already if you kill
1: somebody, people will be less afraid.
0: Well, no, no, no I mean, you, you right. I mean, I think there's that. But, uh, but also, I wonder if, if the, if the state sort of, apl- humiliation is not quite the right word, but, but the assertion of force over this person. I do wonder if that has a kind of just psychological effect of like, yeah, we're willing to go there, you know, that 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 communicates a message that's chilling to people.
2: I, I think of it. I, I did. I did. When I wrote my book, I was thinking of the death penalty and and for, uh, first of all, of, of yeah. murderous crime and the death penalty in a context on which they were sort of like in the same spectrum of behavior as war. Right. Right. Or yeah. insurgency or, ter- you know like they're all kind of in the same flow and the more threatening to social stability and the integrity of a legitimate state the crime is the more it feels like the state is justified in using force including deadly force to to stop it right and again those are judgment calls but But uh, I mean, just realistically, I mean, we are living, uh, uh, you know, my book was written in 2009, and the thing that prompted me to write it was the awareness that the death penalty was in decline, right? It was already in decline then. And I argued that it was in decline not because the public had like turned against it, but because crime was declining and there were fewer murders and the sort of combined, sort of feeding on itself cycle of lower punitive sentiment plus fewer cases, you know, in which there might be a death sentence was just kind of like reducing the case. And we've now whittled the death penalty down to a much smaller set of eligible cases. We haven't done it consciously. We haven't done it in a consistent manner. But I'm impressed by the fact that we've done it. You know, we've contained the death penalty. And I think we're getting possibly we're getting closer to a death penalty that is even, even as it's getting smaller is getting more legitimate you know what i mean well, i think but, but i but think for, that's that's it's a, it's almost a, certainly under inclusive right like look it's 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 a real question whether the guy who
1: shot who killed 10 people in a racially motivated massacre will get executed or not because new york state refuses to do its duty and the federal government is waving its hands in the air so you know i i, I can concede that we we've gone Maybe we got a little focused, but it still seems like we've gotten too focused.
2: Well, I mean, you know, that's for the jury. I mean, don't forget what our law is. The constitutional law is that the the death penalty has to be, they have to weigh the mitigating and aggravating factors before they, right? Just getting through the door of committing the crime that renders you eligible for the death penalty doesn't solve the mitigating and aggravating Problem, And I think that's appropriate. There might be. I haven't studied the case of this horrible racist who killed the people in Buffalo. But for all I know, there is some mitigating factor, some element of his childhood. I mean, look at the kid who massacred all the students at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. You know, I think his life story is extremely sad, traumatic. And, you know, he killed a lot of people very cold bloodedly. But given his youth and his circumstances, I think it was reasonable for a jury to take that into account and mitigate. I don't feel the same way toward him that I feel toward John Allen Muhammad, who was a grown man who coldly pursued and hunted people. You know what I'm saying? It's just, yeah. I think I think the underinclusive thing is the error I would rather have than than certainly than overinclusive. Well, so, so it's interesting
0: because I think your your the, the, the implicit case for the death penalty...
1: And I think, I think, mor- I think after this, we want to we sort of do close yeah, it off. Sorry, sure. Yeah, Yeah, so the implicit
0: moral case you've, you've been advancing, it, I mean, seems to center on the kind of essentially antisocial, even anti-civilizational nature of certain acts. And it's almost... You've kind of, I think, not stated, but implied that this is... It's not just about giving people what they deserve, but it's about like reinforcing and expressing a community's condemnation of it and sending a message to other people there's kind of so there's that expressivist function but i think that this is sort of the last big philosophical laundry i want to let both of you grapple with is you mentioned earlier the stephen Grier argument that well he's forgotten what he did so is it are we really even killing someone who's meaningfully culpable now right if he lacks any kind of psychological connection to his crime right i mean i think that is an interesting question and another is like so suppose they haven't, suppose there were a rehabilitation pill we could give people that would completely remove their propensity to violently offend in the future and would also cause them to develop this hitherto unknown moral sense where they suddenly are like, oh, wait, wow, yeah, that was horrible of me. Jesus, I feel terrible. And and truly uh, upon taking this pill, like, you know, came to realize and, 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 feel deeply like how horrible they had been, I guess sort of my two questions are one, if someone took that pill and repented for their crimes as a result of it, would they still deserve to be executed? Are they really still meaningfully the same person who committed the crime? And then the other question is, uh, supposing such a pill existed, would it be better to give that person the pill than to execute them?
2: (laughs) Well. Lucky for me, that pill doesn't exist because that's a really hard question, which (laughs) which we'll probably never face. There are I mean, there's no pill, but there are people who have been rehabilitated and got executed anyway. You know, that that has happened um, Mm -hmm. many times. And it's 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 a little bit anguishing, you know, and I think I think those are cases. We haven't talked about executive clemency which I think is actually the most underutilized power in the whole system of the U.S. government and the state government, because governors are chicken. They don't want one of, one of the, the one position on the death penalty I cannot respect at all is the position of the governors, and there have been a number of them who say, well, you know what, I, I have terrible moral qualms about the death penalty. I'm, as long as I'm governor, I'm not going to sign a single death warrant, and yet they won't Grant executive clemency and remove the death penalties, and so I don't know if there's if there could be a pill, but I think if there are people, and there there have been who truly change on death row, who make some kind of moral transition, they should they should get a, a fair hearing for executive clemency. I really believe that and and then you know that's a safety valve in the system for that. but I think at the same time, It doesn't change what they did, you know, that, that has to be punished somehow. And interestingly, I think that shows why there's a certain accidental poetry in sentencing people to death, but not putting them to death. Yeah. Because it accomplishes, it sort of discharges society's moral repugnance toward the act without actually facing up to the responsibility society would assume for executing someone, which even if that person meets all the criteria and goes through all the process, you still, it's still a very, it, it's, it's not a pretty thing. Nobody could ever be happy yeah. that anyone has ever executed.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we want to go to closing thoughts, but if, if I can invoke podcaster privilege and go first, Charles, I think that, what that leaves me with, too, is so you kind of gave me a good, a good segue into sort of my last both worry about the death penalty and also a way to mitigate it, which is it always just seemed to me that if you, if, you know, if you don't protract the the litigation over years and years, decades, you know, the, the risk is that if you kill people, you in effect deny them the opportunity to change and to feel the weight of their sins and to kind of fully repudiate them. And there is something I think tragic about actively mm-hmm. and deliberately denying someone the possibility for rehabilitation or redemption. And I do think that your kind of compromise solution of putting them to death, but kind of making it so that in practice, you know, you're sentencing them to death, but, but not actually you know, usually putting them to death is a way to maybe square that circle. And presumably, there's a way to do this where you could, you know, for the truly horrible cases of like terrorism, where someone goes on a killing spree and says he's unrepentant after 20 years, he still is like, yes, and I would do it again. You know, it it allows for there to be a few executions, but also to, I think, remove the kind of most wrenching choices that i think are inherent to a lot of the way we still currently do it so yeah i guess i leave the conversation thinking i'm still s- skeptical of a lot of the death penalty but there may be a way to address my skepticism without getting
1: rid of it entirely and i'd probably support that charles yeah i mean look you know i think our guest i think chapter particularly a lot of the points a lot of the points that i agree with, and you know i think his his essential argument that look, certain crimes are so heinous that they are proportional, the death is the only proportional response, is the sort of core argument in favor of capital punishment in some form or other. I think everyone there there are people who do not agree with that. And I think most of those people are sort of fairly principally committed to profound passages or sort of found interpretation of a Christian position. Well, I actually respect that more than a lot of the death penalty abolitionists who sort of make pretext arguments. But also they're the minority. And most people agree with me, and most people agree with Chuck. And you know, I think the thing that I'd add to that is that we dramatically underestimate the number of crimes that are genuinely heinous. Like, I don't know, there are a lot of horror stories out there. Go, here's here's the thing I like about Clarence Thomas and every Clarence Thomas opinion on capital punishment. Before he gets to the actual merits of the law, he first explains what the offender actually did. They are uniformly horrifying. Like, it's not, there Were there are of course cases, and I think there are historical cases more than modern cases, of course cases, where plausibly the death penalty is handed down disproportionately can dispute about it. But like, Actually, people do terrible things on a regular basis. There are twenty hundred people in death row. Twenty hundred people did terrible things. It seems kind of like a low number to me. So you know, I think I think once you grant the premise that like the optimal that that there are certain crimes to which death is the proportionate response, the number of those crimes is probably larger than we like to believe. That's sort of my 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 takeaway from you know I, I generally agree with our guest, which is good. I'm, I'm pleased that we we found somebody who agrees with me. Most people who go on podcasts don't agree with me about this. That's fine. Why don't we do? Why don't we do some recommendations, Aaron? Do you have a recommendation for listeners today? Yeah, this is a movie that I think is
0: probably coded as being anti-death penalty, but even whatever your thoughts are on the death penalty, it's just a good movie. It's called Dead Man Walking, and it's about this guy who is sentenced to death for a really, 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 really heinous crime that he claims he didn't commit, and I won't spoil whether he did or didn't actually commit it. That's part of the movie, but. I think wh- wherever you fall, it it, it it does a good job of laying out the moral stakes of the death penalty without, I think, romanticizing the people who are put to death. And it does it does a good job of, I think, being honest about the fact, as as Charles just said, look, some people really are evil and do really horrible things.
1: Yeah. Let me let me just get one in real fast. My recommendation this week. I, I maybe I don't think Chuck alluded to it Maybe he did. My favorite book on capital Punishment is Stuart Banner's The Death Penalty in American History, which is like it's what it says on the tin folks. But it's it's really a comprehensive survey and I think gives you a sense of how we got to where we are now. Chuck, do you have a recommendation for our listeners from your own work from others?
2: You mean you mean even am I allowed to recommend my own books? please. They have execution yeah, by calling, but I'll I'll add another one. My my colleague David Vondrelli a number of years ago wrote a book with a terrific title called Among the Lowest of the Dead about the death penalty in Florida in the 1980s as it was being reinstated and it's told much of it is told through the eyes of David Kendall a defense lawyer for people on death row and there's just a lot of good detail about the the struggle of a of an anti-death penalty lawyer who knows you know all the moral dilemmas of Defending people who've probably done pretty bad things, but sticking to his principles, which are opposed to capital punishment, and the it, it, it's it's a very well written book from another era, but from the time when we were bringing the death penalty back. ok. Well, thank you, Chuck, so much for
1: joining us on institutionalized. Thanks for having me. Thank you, as always to our producers and Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, death warrants that you'd like to direct towards us, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time that we're giving to this episode. Until next time, I'm Charles F. Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. I hope you'll join us again soon.